The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. Today, we're having a special episode for ASRM. In fact, it's going to be a two-part episode. During these two episodes, we're going to be talking to some of the researchers from EVRMA who presented their work at the recent ASRM Congress, both to highlight their papers that EVRMA has shared during this recent Congress, but also to discuss other abstracts they found interesting and get their thoughts on the latest in our field. First, we're going to introduce this episode with Dr. Emre Selly, the Chief Scientific Officer at EVRMA Global. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit in your role as the Chief Scientific Officer for this very, very large group, how, how you face ASRM, how you get ready to coordinate everything that's published um, and presented at the conference, and how you face uh, this, what is probably the biggest scientific event of the year for, for the group? Well, as you know, EVRMA has a very robust research uh, program, and it is a very well-defined uh, program with uh, clearly defined aims. EVRMA allocates enormous amount of resources into research and, and scientific development and innovation and aims to uh, find strategies to improve the outcomes of our patients. So uh, I guess the research would be defined as clinical or translational. We do not use, other than our specific laboratories in Valencia, we do not necessarily invest too much into animal research or model development, but we try to uh, understand and employ uh, quality, novel, basic science information into uh, the daily practice of reproduction and assisted reproduction. We are interested in um, using medications more efficiently. We are interested in uh, identifying and developing new tests that will give us better uh, information about patient outcomes and, and embryo development. Uh, among others, basically. And uh, our investigators are funded internally, as well as sometimes uh, from uh, federal agencies in different countries, both in Europe uh, and, and elsewhere. And of course, we do follow to make sure that there is a production at the end of the funding. Uh, when, we, when our investigators identify uh, quality data, you know, generate quality data, uh, we would like to share this uh, with, the, with our colleagues in, in the field. And, and, and we believe uh, one of the best venues to share this data is ASRM. So actually, ASRM is a very important event for us. We enjoy it. Uh, we enjoy it much more when it's in person. But we, uh, we still chose to uh, attend ASRM. We knew it was going to be online, uh, although you know, the, we still chose to uh, register as a whole group as if it was um, uh, an in-person meeting. 
because we wanted to support the society uh, with our research as well as, of course, financially. And we, we also thought that uh, asking our members and our trainees, our fellows to write their abstracts and prepare their presentation would motivate to submit their papers. So the way we prepare is that immediately after ASRM ends, which is right now, we plan, we plan for the next one. Uh, and, this, and the next one, meaning uh, uh, there are different types of research, if you will, uh, if there will be a retrospective clinical uh, data analysis, or if it's a translational work on a test development that can use samples in our biorepository, this can be a, uh, this can be a study that can be ready for just the next one, so 2021 in this case, uh, which will be a submission in May and presentation in October 2021. Uh, however, as you know, uh, we ask our fellows to uh, have uh, more complex studies than that. We ask each fellow to have uh, a randomized clinical trial by the time they complete their fellowship. So those generally take two to three years from IRB approval to the execution. Uh, so probably the more complex uh, trials that we will submit for 2021 started either last year or the year before. Uh, but again, it's a, we, we, we have the same attitude toward ASHRAE. We, they're equally important for us because, you know, as you know, many of our very important researchers are in Europe uh, and some are in the United States. Uh, so we, we try to attend both of them as well as SRI and sometimes uh, SSR. Yeah, it's, uh, it's clear that, I mean, there's been a lot presented. I think, uh, how, how many abstracts did the EVRM end up presenting at SRM this year? I, I think it, this year it was around 74, and last year I think it was even more than that. Uh, overall, we, our work accounts for 5, five to 10% every year of either total abstracts or oral abstracts. Uh, again, this is uh, from, we have 70 investigators within our group, and a number of very strong collaborations with uh, leading schools like Oxford University, Cambridge University, Caltech, Yale, Harvard. So a lot of data comes uh, through those efforts. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, con congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's definitely, it's definitely a teamwork, a very efficient team. And also we have a very, as you know, we have a central organization located in our foundation in Valencia that really oversees regulatory aspects of research protocols. Uh, they are following to make sure everybody complies. And as you know, many of our researchers are clinicians who work every day in the clinic. They don't get free time for it. They, they do it in their spare time right. because that's what they love to do. However, sometimes when you're a clinician and you're very tired, you may not necessarily want to fill a form or you know think about the legal, legal aspects of something. So we do have a team that supports that. And I think that's a big part of our success. That's a huge help. Um, tell us a little bit about um, one of the one of the abstracts from 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 the group from EVRMA that you would like to highlight that was presented at ASRM this year. So if it's if I have to choose one of the EVRMA abstracts, my favorite uh, is a study that was designed uh, by Richard Scott and executed primarily by our, our graduating fellow Ashley Teagues. It's a multi-center prospective study. And as its name implies, it's a multi-center prospective blinded non-selection study uh, that evaluated the predictive value of an aneuploid diagnosis uh, with PGTA and also the impact of biopsy. So the reason why I like this uh, study is because it's, it's, it's huge and it's, it's, it's a major undertaking, as, as people who are in this field would agree. 
and it is addressing two questions that are extremely important in the field. The first one is whether or not we are discarding, uh, wrongfully discarding embryos by labeling them as aneuploid. In other words, whether the aneuploid diagnosis is correct. And the second question is whether biopsying the uh, trophoectoderm causes any adverse effect on the embryo's reproductive potential. Both of them are extremely important and both of them can only be really answered uh, or studied using a specific design. And that is not a randomized clinical trial because you will not be able to answer the first question in a randomized clinical trial because in a randomized clinical trial, if you, you know the diagnosis of an embryo to be aneuploid, you would never transfer them. So what, what the um, group did in this uh, specific case for the first part, what they did is they uh, put women through um, IVF and uh, embryos were collected as usual. And in our practice, we do a single embryo transfer and we do frozen thought single embryo transfer only. And that's what we did with these patients. And they also underwent an embryo biopsy. However, the results were not available, were not made available prior to transfer. So these women underwent a, a transfer without really knowing the uh, euploidy status of their embryos. And this was the same for their their physicians didn't know, and the embryologists also did not know. They were blinded to, to the diagnosis. And a total of 402 participants uh, were included. This is, again, a very large study in that aspect. And as far as the outcomes, basically, what we found that uh, of, of all the transfers that were done, uh, when we went back and looked at uh, how many of them had a diagnosis of um, uh, aneuploidy, so we found that out of 484 transfers to these women, uh, 102 were diagnosed as aneuploid. 102 embryos were diagnosed to be aneuploid. And of those diagnosed with aneuploid, none implanted, not a single one. Uh, of course, we will not say that the positive predictive value is 100%, but you would agree that it is quite high. It is pretty close. And if you go to the second question of whether or not doing a biopsy harms the embryo, well, again, all of these 484 uh, transfers involved embryos that were biopsied, right? And transferred, some euploid, some aneuploid, some mosaic, whatever they might be. So we compared those embryos to those women who, in our practice to, who underwent a transfer without a, a, a biopsy. These, these women were people who declined doing a PGTA and in the, in the same time frame, and they, they had similar clinical characteristics. And actually, when we compared to both groups, there, uh, the, the sustained implantation rate of the two groups were practically identical. I mean, there was like 1% difference between the two, and it was definitely not statistically significant. So as such, uh, our findings suggest that uh, the way it is done in our practice, trophectoderm biopsy uh, does not have a detrimental effect. And it's quite comforting for our patients as well as physicians. So I think overall, this was a major undertaking. Uh, it involved a number of uh, our uh, centers in, from Philadelphia to Florida to uh, San Francisco and a, a very hard work from all of our fellows and especially Ashley Teagues, who has done an, an outstanding job.
Um, so that was definitely, uh, I agree 100%, there's a huge paper and very, very important to know that we have validated the, the platform. Can you tell us a little bit about another abstract that you found interesting, perhaps one not from EVRMA, that you can tell us a little bit about? Well, I, I think I would highlight uh, the, um, uh, the AMH abstract that came from Yale. Uh, Reshef Tal was the first, uh, key author. Uh, and it's, the abstract later received actually the ASM prize. Uh, this is, um, the abstract's title was AMH highly correlates with assisted reproductive reproduction cumulative live birth rate in women with DOR independent of age. And this was an analysis of 30,000 plus cycles from the SART database between 2014 and 16. So basically, uh, what they did is they they went ahead and they identified all the cycles that originated from an initial retrieval and then calculated the um, cumulative um, live birth rate for each uh, retrieval and then associated that with the AMH and, and assessed whether AMH is an independent predictor of cumulative live birth. And they found it to be so. Now, of course, you know, one might say that it should be, but there's nothing surprising about it, right? Because I guess when you have a higher AMH, you have more eggs. When you have more eggs, you have more embryos. And when you have more embryos, you have more euploid embryos. And therefore, you are likely to have a higher number of cumulative live birth. And yes, it is not a very surprising data. And yes, it is kind of a retrospective analysis. But I uh, I personally have, I guess, a bias in a sense that I, I really love studies that are trying to associate uh, ovarian reserve uh, versus aging versus outcome and they are interrelated but not exactly the same thing and i think this is a very good addendum to our data our uh, knowledge in a sense and it will help us counsel our patients and as such i think it's it's a solid contribution and it was a nice abstract and very nicely presented and also you know the questions were answered beautifully also. Absolutely. I actually really enjoyed uh, Dr. Tal's presentation as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sally. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Next, we're talking to Dr. Emily Osman. Dr. Osman is a recent graduate of the Thomas Jefferson University RMA of New Jersey REI Fellowship Program, who's now joined as a specialist. Thank you so much for making time for us, Dr. Osman. Oh, thank you for having me. So you, you presented a very interesting paper on the use of slush nitrogen for embryo, uh, for embryo preservation. Can you tell us a little bit about this abstract? Right. So um, slush nitrogen has um, been studied in the past as an alternative to liquid nitrogen for the vitrification, mostly of um, oocytes, human oocytes and animal embryos. And... What slush nitrogen is, um, is it is liquid nitrogen and we generate slush nitrogen by applying negative pressure to the liquid nitrogen and dropping the temperature from minus 196 degrees Celsius to around minus 210 degrees Celsius. And by lowering that temperature and generating the slush, we're allowing for more rapid vitrification and the question that we sought to answer was, is this a less toxic alternative to liquid nitrogen? Prior to the implementation of any um, technology or any um, new 
um, method of doing anything really in the IVF lab. It's critical to perform um, sort of a safety trial and to ensure that this new substance technology, um, et cetera, that we're introducing isn't going to be harmful to um, an embryo. And so that was really the purpose of the study was a preclinical um, trial assessing what is the overall toxicity of slush nitrogen and how does that impact survival of an embryo and specifically um, a mature expanded blastocyst after vitrification. So with the study itself, we utilized mature expanded blastocysts that had undergone PGTA testing, and they were actually aneuploid and donated for research purposes. We used a very specific grade of embryo, um, a four or five expansion grade, and uh, inner cell mass introfectoderm grade of B or better, because we wanted to use high-quality embryos, despite the fact that they were aneuploid. And it should be noted that aneuploid embryos are just as likely to survive a warming process as a euploid embryo or a genetically normal embryo. So what we did was we took each embryo and cryopreserved it or vitrified it and then thawed it over and over again. And this was a randomized controlled trial. So 50% of the embryos were repeatedly vitrified and thawed in slush nitrogen, and 50% of the embryos were vitrified and thawed in liquid nitrogen. And those embryos were matched based on the age of the oocyte that created the embryos, and they were also matched um, based on the embryo grade themselves. And that was important because you want to make sure that the embryos in each group are equal, essentially. So by repeatedly freezing and thawing those embryos, the embryos that were vitrified in slush nitrogen far surpassed the embryos vitrified in liquid nitrogen in terms of um, overall survival. They survived more cycles and in better condition than the embryos vitrified in liquid nitrogen, suggesting that the lower temperature of slush nitrogen or this super cooled freeze um, has the ability to kind of protect the embryo from vitrification associated toxicity in comparison to liquid nitrogen. In general, since the advent of vitrification and its utilization in the IVF lab, survival of embryos and oocytes is um, dramatically better as compared to um, slow freezing. But you know, we know that losses of embryos and oocytes do occur, and we're constantly striving to improve those statistics. And so slush nitrogen um, sort of represents a promising approach to improving um, post-warming survival of embryos um, and has really opened the door to multiple clinical trials that are now underway at um, EVRMA. That's so, so interesting. Do you have any, any plans for testing this with, with euploid embryos, transferring those embryos? What, what steps are there between now and, and then? Right. So now um, we have a clinical trial underway um, utilizing slush nitrogen with oocytes. So um, we are now utilizing it to see if the it enhances survival of oocytes after vitrification. And we're also um, utilizing it for exactly what you said, euploid embryos, to see if there are increased sustained implantation rates after its utilization and implementation. And so um, both of these kind of next steps or um, clinical avenues are very promising. It is very promising. How, how do you, th how generalizable is this, do you think, in terms of 
you know, what is required to produce and maintain the slush nitrogen and in, in general by other labs? Right. So the slush nitrogen is actually relatively easy to generate. Um, there is one particular manufacturer that makes a slush nitrogen generator that we used in our study. It's called the Vitmaster. Um, the Vitmaster, um, in terms of cryopreservation, it's easy to pour the liquid nitrogen in, apply negative pressure, and submerge the um, embryos and oocytes in the slush nitrogen. And you don't have to store um, gametes or embryos in slush nitrogen. It's the initial vitrification that's most important. And so they can still be stored according to traditional um, protocols in doers with liquid nitrogen. And so slush nitrogen is very easy to implement in laboratories and especially in laboratories where post-warming survival rates may vary quite a bit. Slush nitrogen is, um, you know, represents a very promising intervention to help improve those um, survival rates. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting, right? That the, the freezing itself is what matters and then they can actually be stored at minus 196 like normal. Right, we used traditional concentrations of cryoprotectant agents um, for both the embryos in the liquid and slush nitrogen group, but potentially lowering those cryoprotectant agent concentrations, especially in embryos utilizing slush nitrogen also um, can help reduce vitrification associated toxicity. Very, very, very interesting and very, very promising. Thank you so much, Dr. Osman, for your time. Thank you. Next up, we have Dr. Elena Labarta from EV Valencia. She presented a poster titled Comparison of the Embryo Quality Obtained After an Unstimulated and Stimulated Cycle in the Same Infertile Population Undergoing In Vitro Fertilization. Dr. Labarta, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me to present this, this study today. It is my pleasure. Our pleasure too. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your abstract that you presented about your poster? Well, of course. Uh, our study uh, has uh, tried to investigate if uh, the ovarian stimulation that we usually um, uh, use for uh, in vitro fertilization treatments uh, it could be detrimental or could be bad for the embryo quality. And uh, in order to investigate this, we, we have compared the embryo quality uh, in the same patient obtained after a natural cycle and after an stimulated cycle. So this is the best way to do an intrapatient comparison and to uh, study the net effect of the ovarian stimulation on the quality of the embryos. Uh, for this, uh, we have uh, studied uh, 40 patients uh, who did first a natural cycle without any drugs, and later on we did the conventional stimulated cycle. And we have compared the embryo quality uh, from different points of view. First, uh, we compare the morphological aspect of the embryo, how it looks like in the, in the lab. Secondly, we compare the morphokinetics. That means that we are uh, analyzing the way uh, the embryo is dividing itself in the, in the laboratory. And finally, we have compared the percentage of uh, chromosomal abnormalities in these embryos. Uh, our main outcome was to um, calculate the mean number of mature oocytes that we needed to obtain one healthy, one euploid 
embryo, one euploid blastocyst. This is the best way to see if the stimulation can uh, alter the quality of the embryos. Fortunately, uh, once we saw the results, we have seen that there is no difference in the, in the aspect of the, of the embryos uh, in the morphological evaluation. The embryos coming from the stimulated cycle uh, divide a little bit faster, and this is a good sign. That means that uh, they, they can reach the, the blastocyst stage um, uh, more easily. And finally, uh, the percentage of uh, chromosomal abnormalities is absolutely comparable. But the most important thing is that the mean number of foresights needed to obtain one uh, euploid embryo was absolutely comparable. Which is the conclusion? Uh, the conclusion is that ovarian stimulation does not significantly affect to the quality of the embryos that we are generating. And this is a really good sign. Yeah, that's good news. And I, I understand that this is actually the second part of your thesis. Can you tell us a little bit about the first part? I know it was, uh, you were telling me before we started recording that this was published in, in 2012. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the first part and what is what is similar and different between that first part and this part? Yes, of course. Uh, the, 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 um, the research started many years ago uh, when we asked ourselves if ovarian stimulation was detrimental for embryo quality in a moment in which uh, there was a trend towards mild stimulation because it was suggested that ovarian stimulation was very deleterious to the embryo. And we did uh, a similar design, uh, but in this case, uh, as it was a proof of concept study, we did so in oocyte donors uh, because we wanted to um, study the net effect of ovarian stimulation in fertile patients just to avoid any bias related with the uh, infertility situation of the patient. So we did the same study. We compare uh, natural and stimulated cycle. This was the first intrapatient comparison between both cycles, and it, this was published in, in the journal JCM in 2012. And we found the same. We found that there were no differences in the, in, in the aneuploidy rate between natural and stimulated cycles. The advantage of uh, the new study is that uh, we have incorporated the newest uh, technologies uh, because obviously uh, at that time we were doing the genetic screening uh, or the chromosomal analysis of the embryos by fish technique, analyzing only nine chromosomes. And now Nowadays, uh, we can analyze uh, the whole constitution of the embryo with the NGS. And um, moreover, we, we have included also the, um, the morphokinetic evaluation uh, because we have uh, nowadays the time-lapse technology in our lab. So it is like another way to uh, further investigate uh, about the, the impact of, of the ovarian stimulation on the embryos. And finally, and most importantly, uh, a, a, the, the study now has been conducted in infertile patients. So uh, we wanted to uh, see if the results that we obtained many years ago were also applicable to the 
infertile population. And we have confirmed the same, uh, that uh, the results are also, can be validated in this type of population, yeah. Of course, the study didn't really evaluate pregnancy outcomes, but instead it, it kind of clarifies that stimulation doesn't affect the embryo quality, at least in terms of aneuploidy, which makes sense, right? We have mm -hmm. the same percentage of aneuploid embryos with more embryos to begin with, so more euploid embryos. Yeah, that's overall. the point. That's the point. Yeah, I mean the 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 problem is that the design of this study uh, does not allow us to compare pregnancy rate because obviously the the study and control group uh, is the same patient. Okay, so you cannot compare pregnancy outcome between groups. Right. But uh, the the most important message is that okay, once I do an stimulated cycle, I will obtain more embryos without decreasing the quality of that embryos. And uh, this is important because finally, if I have more embryos to be transferred and more euploid embryos, my cumulative pregnancy rates are gonna be higher and I, I will obtain the pregnancy uh, easier okay so finally it's not only uh, to obtain one euploid embryo it's to obtain uh, more than one in order to uh, build the complete family in a in a single stimulation cycle knowing that we are not uh, hampering the, the quality of the embryos and this is the main message i mean uh, we have uh, basically we have demonstrated that that there is no negative effect and then the interpretation is that uh, having more euploid blastocysts after an stimulated cycle we will have more chances of having uh, a pregnancy in fact, uh, and just to finish, we have seen a linear relationship between the number of oocytes and the, the number of euploid embryos obtained. So I think that uh, in the context of a conventional stimulation uh, being moderate, we are uh, going to obtain a higher number of euploid blastocysts and increasing the pregnancy rates. You, you mentioned earlier the one of the more kind of unexpected, perhaps, or surprising findings of your of your study was that the, the embryos coming from the stimulated cycles were actually faster to divide and reach blastocyst stage than those from natural cycles. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts as to why that may be or what theories behind that? Well, we, we have thought about it and, and if we, uh, if we want to interpret uh, these results, I would say that this is a good sign. I mean, uh, we have seen that uh, embryos who develop faster uh, are the good embryos. For example, in age women, we see that there is a, a, a lower division rate. And for example, when we compare uh, embryos coming from own oocytes versus donated oocytes, we see that uh, donated uh, embryos are also faster. So this is like a, a, a surrogate of a, a good embryo quality. So at least we are not decreasing the quality of these embryos in the stimulated cycle. We, we can see that we are obtaining a really good quality in the stimulated cycle. So this is really a good sign. Do you, do you think we need more studies? I know, like you said, you know, this has been an, an area of some controversy over the past few years. Do, do you think we need more studies evaluating the possible harm to embryos from stimulation? Or do you think this kind of puts the whole issue to rest once and for all? 
Well, you know, as always, in when we do research, uh, we have uh, uh, new pathways to to be uh, to be explored, uh, and the story never finish. Okay, but uh, it is true that this type of studies, like the one that we present here today, are very difficult to 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 fulfill because obviously uh, it is it is very time consuming, very demanding to do a natural cycle and. To to obtain such a, a such a poor uh, result because uh, I haven't said this, but the cancellation rates in the natural cycle is uh, are very high. So this is why. Well, uh, obviously, the idea to continue doing research is really good, uh, and there is still uh, room for that. But uh, from the logistic point of view, it is true that to do this type of comparisons is not so easy. But for sure, uh, we can continue on that. Th thank you so much. Thank you for, for inviting me to present this study today. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. See you. Bye-bye. Our fourth and last guest for the day is Dr. Garcia Velasco from EV Madrid. Dr. Garcia Velasco, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to meet you too, Dr. Wright. Um, you, you presented an abstract uh, relating obesity and uh, miscarriages at ASRM. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Right. We just uh, presented this oral presentation, uh, which uh, tries to uh, dissect the problem that we, we still are trying to understand. Uh, but it seems that women who have a clear overweight may have a, a poorer outcome after IVF. So we, we uh, retrospectively analyzed uh, almost 3,500 uh, single euploid embryo transfers. So we were talking about uh, discarding all the abnormalities within the chromosomes of the embryo, just to be as, as pure in design as possible. And we retrospectively analyzed how, how they went. So we did uh, the classical logistic regression analysis uh, for these different BMI characteristics. And, and it was, uh, as expected, we, we, we found that um, when you have a, a clear uh, overweight and, and especially uh, obesity, if your, your BMI is beyond 30, uh, your outcome is going to be poorer. So it's not only that these patients require higher doses of gonadotropins, uh, it's that um, the miscarriage rate is significantly higher. It's uh, 22.7 versus 15.1 to be precise. And if you continue the follow-up and you go up to live birth rates, um, there's also a reduced live birth rate in, in obese women. It's uh, 34.3 versus 44.5. So, so um, it seems that there is a, a metabolic disease within these patients. That it is not only the chromosomal abnormalities. Uh, something is is wrong within these oocytes, or maybe the embryos, or maybe the implantation process that that impedes these uh, um, implanting embryos to go on and proceed to a live birth. And, and this is what we um, um, found and, and discussed recently at ASRM. What you're concluding is that not not so much, or maybe not only, that the BMI itself is the problem, the the, the weight, so to speak, um, but rather that there's a, some sort of underlying pathology that can actually affect the oocytes, the embryos, and the implantation to some degree. Yeah, exactly. That, that's something that is being discussed nowadays. I mean, we we know that uh, high BMI is not good. We we are still not sure that if you are able to reduce this BMI, your outcome is going to be better. And and this is a question that we're trying to understand in the future. In the future, uh, because we we do see uh, differences in the um, 
fertilization rate, a cleavage rate, um, a nuclear rate, all these things. So something may be wrong uh, within the metabolic uh, system of this patient. And we know that overweight is a, is a challenge for this body. We, we are not so convinced yet is that if you're able to reduce your BMI, your outcome is going to be improved. This is uh, probably the, the key question today because it seems clear that the outcome is going to be poorer when you have a high BMI. Right. Yeah, that's that would be, I, I guess, the, the key way to study would be to reduce the BMI in the same patient, of course, but it's it's not easy right. to do. That would be difficult. <laughs> Regarding other things that you saw at ASRM, other um, other abstracts, other presentations that you found interesting, tell us a little bit what, what you liked about this year's edition. Another area that was quite interesting in this meeting uh, was uh, new ideas to treat our patients with uh, pain due to endometriosis. And in the, uh, in the oral session of Tuesday, dedicated to endometriosis, there were a couple of uh, abstracts that uh, I think they were pretty interesting. One of them was, uh, was a very nice study, it was a large study trying to um, understand the, the efficacy of, of a new oral GnRH antagonist, the Relugolix. This is a, a multinational phase three randomized double-blind placebo controlled study. So it's probably a, a very strong evidence of, of what they can do, with, what they can achieve with this uh, combination of medication. The combination actually was uh, in, in three arms. One arm received 24 weeks of, of uh, Relugolix, 40 milligrams, with a combination of uh, estradiol, one milligram, and norethindrone, half a milligram. The second arm received uh, only relugolics for 12 weeks, and the second set of 12 weeks, they received the combination as in the previous arm, so relugolics plus estradiol plus norethindrone. And the third arm was a placebo, just uh, nothing. Um, and probably this is probably an ideal design for this uh, so-called SPIRIT-2 trial. And as I said, these patients had severe dysmenorrhea and they had non-menstrual uh, pelvic pain as well. They were randomized uh, in, in same number of patients to each arm. And it was a large number of patients to study. It was a total of 623 patients. And they, they uh, clearly showed uh, significant benefits of this combined uh, medication. Uh, if we look at the at the dysmenorrhea and the non-menstrual pelvic pain respondents, uh, 72.8 uh, with the relugolics uh, responded versus 52% uh, in the placebo group. And if we look at uh, daily uh, functioning and opiate-free uh, patients, they were also significantly higher with the combination of medication, 82% versus 66%. So um, the efficacy of the combination, I think, is clearly demonstrated. And also, the, the only fear could be the, the minimal bone mineral density loss because uh, the placebo group and the, and the rheologolics only could be uh, impacting negatively this, this um, uh, bone mineral uh, density. And it was uh, almost exactly the same across the three groups. So um, I think as they conclude in the study, uh, the patients uh, benefited from this once daily oral uh, combination of medication, and they were associated with a very minimal uh, BMD loss uh, that was generally very well tolerated. So I think we have to keep our eyes open to these uh, new products that are coming into the market, and, and it's one more tool to treat these uh, difficult patients. It's not the final an answer to all, all the problems, but I think we're getting new ideas and new products that could make these uh, tough patients to benefit from, from a, a new, new drugs. And in the same session, it was also discussed uh, um, a very interesting new 
product that is being considered for the treatment of endometriotic pain. And this is a, a vaginal ring opposed to tablets and opposed to injections. It's a vaginal ring that contains quinagolide. And quinagolide, as we all know, is a, is a dopamine receptor to agonist that may interfere with the endometriosis, lesion growth and, and pain and vascularization. And this is a very early trial. Um, it was a phase one trial, including 134 female healthy volunteers. And what they were trying to understand was the pharmacokinetics of this uh, vaginal ring with quinagulite. <clears throat> and what they found briefly was a higher bioavailability uh, of quinagulite that compared to oral administration. This ring is uh, able to provide adequate plasma concentrations throughout the entire menstrual cycle. So it lasts up to 35 days, which is extremely convenient. And it was very well tolerated and did not alter reproductive hormone levels or menstrual cyclicity or even in the menstrual histology, which is one of the drawbacks of, of most of the medications that we uh, use uh, for treating endometriotic pain. So again, new ideas and new concepts uh, that uh, we have to be aware that probably will be available for clinicians in the, in the coming uh, next years. Absolutely. It, it was definitely very interesting. In fact, I think um, the, the, another oral on Reliogolix, but in the setting of to treat fibroids, was actually one of the winners of the... Exactly. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting molecule. It's a very interesting molecule. I think we've been waiting for this oral antagonist for years, but now that it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, out in the market, I think it's going to deliver a lot of good news. Good to hear. Very promising. Thank you so much, Dr. Garcia Velasco, for joining us today. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. That is all we have time for today, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining in for part one of our ASRM special episode. We will be releasing part two very shortly. We hope you'll join in and enjoy that one too. See you soon. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.